Welcome to the Thursday Arts Preview, where the P is parenthetical. I'm your host, E.J. Ionelli. There's a new film about Greg and Jerry Canote, a twin brother duo who play old-time country music and were part of the NPR folk music program, Sandy Bradley's Potluck. Ahead of their arrival in Spokane next week for a film screening and two concerts, we'll hear from the Canote twins and their documentarist a bit later in the program. First, though, we're going to profile a different concert that's also coming to Spokane next week. The Concordia Choir out of Moorhead, Minnesota, is stopping here on a regional tour that's taking them to Oregon, California, Montana, and North Dakota as well. Concordia performs nationally and internationally and has a reputation for being one of the top a cappella college choirs in the U.S. Before they hit the road, I spoke by phone with the choir's music director, Michael Culleton, and asked him about the joys and the travails of taking their music around the country and around the world. Yeah, the Concordia Choir is really fortunate. We get to spend two weeks of each academic year on the road together, and there's nothing quite like traveling, sharing music with 60-some of your best friends, uh, and for very appreciative audiences around the United States. We do this on an annual basis, uh, and we've basically divided the country up into five different segments, and we're in a five-year rotation and pleased to be heading out to the Northwest this year. But every third year, we also travel internationally. And that last trip in 2022 to Italy was very special, one of the first tour experiences that the Concordia Choir had ever had to regions of Italy. And we sang at St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City. We sang at beautiful, beautiful cathedrals in Venice and uh, Florence area and Rome. And it was the trip of a lifetime. And it was really a quite special time as we sang a piece in the middle of the Pantheon. And uh, it was very special, made all the more special because we were really coming out of uh, that time where we didn't travel very much and things were shut down. And so we really, really felt lucky, very fortunate to be traveling. And it is a student choir, correct? Yep. The singers in the Concordia Choir make up Oh, representatives of most of the majors on our campus. Uh, we have certainly a good number of music majors, but for every music major, we have a non-music major who's just committed to making music at a high level and rehearsing every day for 90 minutes. Uh, a high level of commitment to be in the Concordia Choir, but uh, I'd like to remind them that to those from whom much is expected, much is given in return. <laughs> they get a lot out of that experience. But um, yes, it's a fully undergraduate student ensemble. Yeah, and as the music director, that must pose some interesting challenges for you, as well as the rest of the choir, because in choirs that are maybe extracurricular, um, so outside of uh, the school, you will have longtime members as well as a contingent of rotating members. But with right. this, the most you're ever going to spend with anybody is four years. That's right. And actually, the most I'm going to spend with anybody in the Concordia Choir is three years, because we do ask them to sing in another choir on our campus for their first year on campus. And then at the end of their first year, they are eligible to audition for the Concordia Choir. So we're primarily a sophomore through senior ensemble. Uh, try to balance those numbers, so I'm not going to graduate 60% of the choir any given year. Uh, but yes, yeah, so the most I see the students 
at Concordia is really three years. And then I hope that they stay in the Fargo-Moorhead area and they can join my community choir where they don't have such a finite amount of time that we're able to spend together. But uh, you're right. The time goes by pretty quickly for a college experience. And uh, we try to make the most of the time that we have together. And every rehearsal is just a wonderful opportunity to examine some musical growth and learning opportunities. And I think that raises the question that given that you are dealing with students and for really no more than three years at a time, how is Concordia able to perform at such a high and internationally recognized level? Uh, Does Concordia College simply attract outstanding singers? Yeah, I think that certainly is a part of it. This is the fourth year that I've been the leader of the Concordia Choir. My two predecessors, Renee Clausen, was here for 34 years. Paul J. Chris Johnson was here for 50 years. So in the last 84 years, there have only been three conductors of the choir. That longevity helps build a reputation, uh, builds learning styles. We do recruit good students here. The college is very generous to give us music scholarship dollars to make college more affordable for those who apply for music scholarships and successfully get them. But honestly, the other big secret for us is that our voice faculty is wonderful. And everybody who's in the Concordia Choir is required to study voice individually as well as having the choral experience. And so thanks to my great colleagues who are looking at those voices one at a time, uh, we're able to play beautifully together in the time that we have on our choral music. Yeah, and I suppose the choir as an institution, which you spoke to, uh, works in its favor because some folks might not realize that it's been around for more than 100 years, and uh, you are just the fourth music director (laughs) in that time. That's right. That's right. Uh, and I should mention Herman Munson was before Paul J. Chris Johnson. That's the four of us. And, <laughs> and uh, But it has been a long time. I, I love to say that my two predecessors and I, uh, between us, we have 84 years of experience. And though this is only my fourth year, we average about 29 years per person of uh, leadership of the Concordia Choir. So that's quite a stint. So did you make this move during COVID? Yeah, I was hired in January of 2020, so I was really excited about my job for one month. And then and then it became about, okay, so how do we protect the legacy of this choir in a time when we're not going to be doing the things that we're known for doing? We do a major Christmas concert, and we do tours, and that was actually going to be the year of our international tour, and that was delayed. So I did take over. There was a little bit of a built-in buffer. I think by the time we came back with the Christmas concert, Nobody was making comparisons between Renee Clausen and I because they were just so happy to have a Christmas concert again. So, yeah, I remember it was the very end of January that I was hired, and uh, I was I was excited, and then I was puzzled about how we're going to do this. And we spent a year in our recital hall singing six feet apart from each other, wearing masks, and then uh, my second year we were back in the choir room, still masked up for most of that year. And it was actually on our choir tour of 2022 where the mask restriction was lifted. So we came home and we were able to sing together on our campus for the first time in all of my time of leadership uh, without wearing masks. And when you are singing, what does your repertoire consist of? Because I had seen a kind of sampling of some of the composers you perform. And so we have some oldies but goodies, some classics of the the choral canon, but also contemporary composers like Sidney Guillaume. Yeah, Sydney wrote an absolutely stunning piece that we did the year that we traveled to Italy. And there wasn't a single performance that whole year where we did not include that piece of music. Oh, it was born. 
uh, this year's program's the same. We're going to, we do, like you said, music from the canon. We're going to do a Bach motet called Com Yesu Com. And we're going to do a premiere of a brand new piece by Marcus Garrett. He's a choral conductor and a wonderful composer. He teaches at the University of North Texas and was commissioned to write a piece for this year's Concordia Choir. So we'll be premiering it all throughout the tour, and it's a piece called Perfect Love. And then uh, we do have a couple of composers whose names are kind of synonymous with the Lutheran choral tradition. Uh, One of those is Paul J. Chris Johnson, who is the conductor here for 50 years, so we'll be doing a piece of his. And his father, Ephemelius Chris Johnson, who's really recognized as kind of the grandfather of the Lutheran choral tradition, taught for a long time at one of our sister schools, St. Olaf College, down in Northfield, Minnesota. And we'll be doing a couple of Ephemelius' pieces, too. So, And in between all of those wonderful, fresh voices, Pulitzer Prize-winning composer Caroline Shaw has a lovely setting of Psalm 84 called End the Swallow that we'll be presenting, and we'll be presenting music by Jocelyn Hagen, who is a Minnesota-based composer but has a wonderful... Uh, Americana uh, arrangement of a piece called Now Our Meetings Over that's on the program. So it is a wide smattering. And that last set that we love to do, I basically call it music of the people, music of the traditions, music of American bedrocks and, and choral traditions. And so that's often where we'll make sure that we're singing music of the people, the folk songs, spirituals, hymnody. People will always recognize some of the tunes that are on our program because I think as much as they uh, value learning something new, they love even more perhaps uh, hearing those pieces that have been familiar to them from their own choral experiences or from being in the audience for many, many years. Yeah, and on that note, you've spoken previously where you talk about music creating a connection to the world around us and how how vital this is for the human experience. And I wondered if you could just elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, singing in the Concordia Choir or in any choir is kind of an interesting situation. You spend all of these weeks and months all by yourself singing in what could be called in a non-negative way a kind of a selfish environment where it's just me and the choir for months at a time. And then I talk to the choir about how it is now time to become selfless in our sharing of the music. And, you know, there's a circle that we think about, too, in, in the performing arts where Uh, The artists and the music that we're making is only one part of the circle. It's the audience that creates the circle. And my predecessor, Renee Clausen, spoke beautifully about this circle that the audience members are a part of in the sharing of the art, in our case, choral music, but it could be live theater or rock and roll bands. And uh, right now we need any connection we can get. We need to be with other people in community as much as we can as we're coming out of the fog of the last several years. And how do we re-strengthen that? And one of the best ways that I think the human spirit can uh, feel lifted up is by making music with other people. And what we really celebrate now is that return to community and that return to communal singing. And, And I know that people all over the world are enjoying that connection that they're making again. Yeah, and it sounds like you're excited not just to get out of Moorhead and bring this to communities, but also to travel the region and bring this music to communities throughout the Northwest. Yeah, Minnesota has a great reputation for being uh, choral country out here. But (laughs) the truth is, and I tell people this all the time, Uh, that Washington State is really a great place to celebrate choral music. Not only are there great choirs in the state of Washington, but a lot of super 
composers and some that I've worked with uh, over the years that come right from Washington State. So it's going to be kind of fun for us to leave one choral stronghold here in Moorhead, but we're just making our way to another one. And tours are rich. And as much time as we spend making music, we also are lugging risers and setting up shells and uh, moving luggage around. But we find that Every day we're on the road is a day where magical and musical and meaningful things can happen. And the importance of that in the lives of young people right now cannot be overstated. Their lives are going to be all the better for what's to come in the next several days as we're on the road. Well, Michael, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out to chat about this. I know you've got a rehearsal to get to, so I don't (laughs) want to delay you. But uh, yeah, thanks so much for commenting on this. Oh, it's my pleasure, and thanks so much for reaching out and uh, allowing us to have this time together. That was Michael Culleton, music director of the Concordia Choir, giving some background on the choir and their 2024 Northwest tour. That tour is bringing them to Spokane on Wednesday, March 6th, when they perform at the Cathedral of St. John the Evangelist. More information about the venue is available at stjohns-cathedral.org, and more information about the choir is available at concordiacollege.edu. And while the Concordia Choir will be performing some work out of the folk repertoire, there's folk music, and then there's folk music. The Canote brothers, Greg and Jerry, have been fixtures of the American folk music world for decades, in part because of their long-running association with the Seattle-based national radio program Sandy Bradley's Potluck. There's a new film about these identical twins and their old-time country music, and it's bringing them to Spokane next week for a screening bookended by two concerts. In anticipation of that, Greg and Jerry joined me for a joint phone call, along with the film's producer and director, Larry Edelman. And the twins began by recalling the early days of Sandy Bradley's potluck. I think it was 83. And, uh, yeah, it started off at uh, Murphy's Pub in Seattle. And it was a little place. Maybe you could squeeze 100 if you were lucky. But it was, you know, everybody came every week, 11 a.m., and started drinking Guinnesses. And uh, KOW had called Sandy Bradley and said, we want to do a radio show. And she put him off every time. And then finally she said, oh, yeah, okay, let's do it. We'll try it. So the first couple shows, we used up all our material, and then we had to find new material for every week. And we had lots of guests. It was like the Prairie Home Companion, really. So we did it from 83 to 96, 35 shows a year, an hour-long show. We got really good at thinking on our feet, actually, yeah. <laughs> and you were also on Prairie Home Companion as well, so you were guests there. Actually, there's a thing in the movie about that. Yeah. Yeah, but we, we did manage to make it onto the Prairie Home Companion a few times. <laughs> you know, and you had mentioned that Sandy Bradley's potluck began in 83, And I came across uh, a statement from you in which you said that the years 1980 through 84 were a particularly frenetic period for the both of you because you were touring extensively, and that was a really busy period, no? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. As Sandy puts it, it was three years of one-night stands. 
Yeah, we we pretty much toured uh, like ten months out of the year for three years, yeah. and and we were in our thirties, so we could do it. <laughs> yeah, and I'd like to talk about the style of music that you perform and your lineage. But it's a good point, maybe, to get into the movie. And Larry, I'll bring you in here, and maybe you can talk about why you decided to make this documentary on the twins. Sure. Um, well, one of the things I wanted to say that, that's delightful is I think every question you've asked these guys so far is covered in the movie. So I, I think that's great. You're right on target and kind of understanding what these guys have been up to all these years. But um, so I had just finished in 2018 a project, a documentary, and I was looking for a new project to start and said, well, how about these guys? And I have known Greg and Jerry for more than 40 years, and we've done a lot of stuff together and met them through Sandy Bradley. And I'll just tell you that brief story. I think it was 1981 or 82, Sandy Bradley, who was a square dance caller, called me, and I was a square dance caller living in Pennsylvania. And she said, I want to come call square dance there. And I want to bring these two crazy guys and you're going to love them. <laughs> and she did. And I did. And that led to, you know, just lots of adventures. Uh, I traveled a little bit with Sandy and these guys when Sandy said she'd rather play than call. And uh, and we did a little recording together. And, and I said uh, to myself, whenever I'm around these guys, I tend to feel happier than I do when I'm not around these guys. And over those 40 years, I found that just about everyone else who comes in contact with these guys feels the same way. And I wanted to make a movie just to not only about these guys and their music, but about that happiness, that joy that somehow people feel when they're around them. Yeah, and Greg and Jerry, I wonder if you could speak to that dynamic and that energy, because being not just brothers, but identical twins, you know, does that plug you into some cosmic wavelength that uh, just kind of makes you more naturally attuned to one another? Yeah, we do talk about that in the movie, how we kind of entertain that idea that we think alike, yeah, because we're really basically the same genetic material. material. And Jerry always says, we share the same brain. You know, so so I wrote a song about being twins, and I put that and shared the same brain. Yeah, yeah. I look like you, you look like me, except not to each other. That's cause we're twins born the very same day to the very same dad mother. They looked at us and said, "Oh my, can't tell one from the other." We'll learn to tell them both apart. They'll dress in different colors. Twins, identical twins, but he. Shorter. He is taller. He is funny. I am smarter. Twins. But but yeah, I mean, and there's lots of factors, and that again is covered in the movie. Uh, we talk about our grandma Emily. Uh, we had cheery people around us. Yeah, growing up. we yeah. we had good uh, good examples. To yeah, we from. we had good role models. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think in that song, Twins, you also address some of the questions that you often get asked because identical twins are kind of a, a an endless source of casual fascination for folks. So they'll come up to you and, you know, here are two people that look alike, that uh, that talk very yeah. much the same, and they'll say, oh, well, surely one of you has to be smarter or one of you has to be taller or they, funnier. They oh, since we were kids. Yeah. Actually, daily, that happens. <laughs> <laughs> which which one's handsomer? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, when we get a chance to um, commune with another set of twins, 
it's always really interesting. You know, you see that they share the same experience. Yeah, and some twins don't get along at all. Yeah, they, some some twins hate each other. They haven't made <laughs> peace with the fact that you are always going to be lumped together, and you have a lack of autonomy sometimes. But we figured that we out have, long we ago. We embraced it. Yeah. yeah. And yet, you chose different instruments. So one of you brings the fiddle, and one of you brings the the guitar or the mandolin. Was there? Yeah. Did you do rock paper scissors for that? You know, we both played in elementary school. Gray played violin, and uh, I played saxophone and clarinet. But then, when I was a sophomore in high school, I got a guitar for Christmas, and that changed my life. And it was also, you know, like '65, I guess. So the Beatles, you know, so it was the perfect time to learn guitar because I could learn great songs and sing songs. And then Greg, you know, I just kept playing the violin and figuring out that I didn't have to do what we did in the orchestra in the string class, you know. And you talk about the Beatles and that kind of being an inspiration to pick up the guitar. But then you went, uh, your chosen type of music ended up going a little bit earlier than that. Yeah. I'm always curious as to how you discovered this music and then why you said, you know what, this really resonates with us and this is where we're going to plant our flag. Yeah. We we just kept going backwards, you know, like we were doing kind of rock and roll. And then kind of uh, folk rock. Yeah. And then from there, a country and then from there, bluegrass. And then we slowly made our way back to, to old time and fiddle tunes. And then uh, the San Francisco Folk Music Club was very influential. We would go up there and we would uh, go down into the basement and all the fiddlers and banjo players and guitar players would be down there playing tunes and they would show us about them. And I think uh, the music attracted us because nobody's taking solo. Sometimes we call it a love jam. Everybody's just playing <laughs> And they're having fun, and uh, that's what we love about it. Yeah. It's a big stew of sound, yeah. <laughs> and I think it's also kind of more accepted in this style of music to have a duo act, because you've often described yourselves as being in a lineage of the Delmore Brothers and the McGee Brothers and the Blue Sky Boys. And right. so there was a precedent there, and then it was a little maybe more comfortable or easier to get into that mold. Absolutely right. easy to plug into that. And and we were discovering some of that music, too, and realizing, oh, it's a duet. We could do that. And yeah. we're brothers. Yeah. yeah. And we both sing. Yeah. And Larry, as a filmmaker, how did you attempt to translate the twins' energy and, you know, some of these intangibles, how did you attempt to translate them to a cinematic medium? You know, I think a a couple ways. One is, you know, we didn't start with a script or a storyboard. We started where I just came out there and spent five days with them. I spent a day with Greg, day with Jer, and then a couple days with both of them. And it's kind of, you know, one style of interviewing that in some cases, you know, I would kind of just capture them in life. So, you know, Greg is a painter and I wanted to talk to him about his painting, but I talked to him while he was painting. I videotaped from the back seat as we were driving, just say, do what you guys do, you know, and ended up catching, you know, just serendipitously some really great interaction that they would have been doing if I wasn't there. And those five days then, I think, really set the the road for where we wanted to go uh, with it. But it was just really saying, let's just get started and see what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
And Greg and Jer, I've never been in the position of having a movie made about my life. I don't know that it would be all that interesting. <laughs> but surely, after you've seen this movie, are there ways in which it prompted you to kind of think about your lives differently or reflect differently on your lives or even maybe see, you know, I knew we had an impact, but I didn't realize just how much of an impact we had. Absolutely. And in fact, what hits me every time I see the movie is how uh, loved we are yeah, and appreciated. And it's such a wonderful feeling to, to feel that. And everywhere we go, there are people that love us. And that is really important. Yeah. I mean, it's also to have kind of our legacy laid out and uh, we, we get to kind of see where we fit in. And know? Larry did such a good job of inserting us into the movie and our music too. So it's kind of a concert and it's kind of a life story. Too. You know, one thing that is interesting about this as a documentary, it doesn't have a typical story arc where, you know, there's a quest of some kind and then there's a set of challenges and then there's some kind of resolution. This is just about a couple happy guys who kind of started out happy were happy in their youth and remain happy and are doing pretty much the same kinds of things that they've always done. And there were times when I tease these guys to try to find some tension in the story <laughs> where I'd say, could one of you get sick? Could one of you get in a car accident? Could, you know, you get in a fight? Could something happen? <laughs> it, it really doesn't have a very typical documentary structure. And I think that's one thing that was fascinating about this was just that it was about them and who they are. And it, it wasn't about a quest, really. It was just about them. But mm. if I'm not mistaken, I think they did get into a car accident back during those heady days of touring. I think it was in Ro just outside of Roanoke, Virginia, wasn't it? It's in there. It's in the movie. And, and, and I milked that car accident for all its worth <laughs> <laughs> because that accident ended up making these guys take a 90-degree turn in their lives, if not a 180-degree turn, you know, and, and it was really yeah, a for getting off the road. Um, and then, you know, the last thing I wanted to touch on is, you know, we've talked a lot about the music that you perform, but what I'm really intrigued by is I think you've made reference to the possibilities of a fiddle and guitar and these just two instruments coupled yeah. with a voice and how, you know, so many incredible permutations exist, even staying within uh, a certain genre of music or even subgenre of music. Absolutely. And I wondered if you could yeah. talk about that and how you continue to find fulfillment in that, in just these two instruments and voice. Greg is really a creative guy, and <laughs> he can't just play a musical line and not mess with it. So, <laughs> so, that really, yeah. so that really makes it fun when we play, because Greg is always creating and going to weird places. And in, in my head, I'll say, I never heard that before, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and Jerry is a very creative noodler. Like, he'll sit at home in front of the fire, and he'll just start, you know, playing on his uke or on his guitar, and he'll figure stuff out. And then, same thing, we'll be playing, or we'll be working on the song, and I'll hear something, I'll go, whoa, where'd yeah. that come from? And the, the, the older I get, the more I like to noodle and explore as we play, and especially when we are um, actually doing a concert. It's part of our DNA right now. Yeah, yeah. We're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Your shared DNA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shared <laughs> DNA. <laughs> same DNA. 
Well, I really wanted to thank you so much for taking the time out to chat about this. And uh, yeah, just the input on your music and your dynamic, as well as the film. Um, yeah, it's much appreciated. Thank you. Yeah, our pleasure. Musicians Greg and Jerry Canote there, as well as Larry Edelman, the producer and director of a new documentary film about them titled The Canote Twins. The Spokane Folklore Society is hosting a Canote Twins concert at Hamilton Studio on March 8th and a dance at the East Spokane Grange on March 9th. There's also a showing of the Canote Twins documentary on March 9th at the Magic Lantern in downtown Spokane, although space for that is very limited. For more information on all those events, head to the Spokane Folklore Society website at spokanefolklore.org. This has been the Thursday Arts Preview, a show that keeps an eye on the past, present, and future of the art scene throughout the Inland Northwest. If you'd like to listen again or catch future episodes as soon as they air, subscribe to the Thursday Arts Preview podcast on major platforms like Spotify, TuneIn, and Apple Podcasts. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm E.J. Ionelli.